Pete, my name is Kirk Graves. I'm a, a member here at Warehouse and been an elder, been around with Kathy, my wife over here for about forever at Warehouse. Um, we were just sitting there and we were looking at things in the building that used to be in our home. And we'll, uh, you'll get bonus points at the end if you can discover, if you can identify one of those objects. Um, I think it left our house about 20 years ago. Somehow it keeps making it in into this room. So that's kind of fun for us. So uh, we're going to talk about the ascension of Jesus in this uh, mini-series here. Uh, the journey continues. Uh, the ascension of Jesus matters a lot, incredibly a lot, because the ascension of Jesus is about identity. Now in a culture where over 169,000 self-help books were published last year, that tells us that we are not knowers of ourselves. We have real issues around identity. And this passage is going to give you some real clarity about the question, the most concrete ontological question, who am I? It's going to give you um, an unflinching criticism to the question, why do I do what I don't want to do? It demystifies Jesus' identity and tells you a little, not a little bit, a lot about what's Jesus doing now? He was here and now he's gone and he's coming back and what's going on with that? And most importantly, this is my goal for the day, is can take you from knowing about God to knowing of God. Now that's, that's something. Because I think that we know a lot about God but our experience of God is very limited. And, and I'm not sure that Christians have much more depth in this area than non-Christians, frankly. And I want to welcome you if you're, you don't cast your lot in with Christians, you're here and say, hey, that sounds pretty good to me. I'm in the right room. That maybe there's something askew with Christians there. So I'm glad that we're taking on this journey, continues, we're calling it, on past Lent and Easter this year because the journey of the prophets and the apostles were on this journey, and we're on this journey as well, and that journey does not end with Easter. This is going to sound a little heretical, but I'm going to go ahead and say it. I don't think it's heretical at all. But if the story ends, if the journey ends at the resurrection, then we're left with some real significant challenges in knowing who we are. We need these two more pieces of the pie the the, excuse me, after the resurrection, the ascension, and what Mike will take on next week, which is Pentecost, if we're to know something more about who we are. With the resurrection came the beginning of what you could call the era of Christ's church. The first event in that is this ascension or this rising or this going away, this taking up of Jesus. The second event is this Pentecost where, the God, where Jesus sends his spirit, the spirit of God, and it falls on the believers and they're baptized and have a new kind of baptism. They're baptized in the spirit and in that spirit, they, they have the ability to not only know a lot of things but to walk, very experiential, to walk in the spirit, right? And then between there and the end of time comes this big long period called, I would call it, the, the, the mission era, where the, the church is taking on the mission, this great commission that Jesus gave us to take his words and his gospel and go everywhere and make disciples throughout the world in his name. That's the mission period. And at the very end is this thing called, 
uh, parousia, right? That's the Greek title. Just means Christ's return. It's a great mystery. We are in the period of mission. It's always nice to know what time it is where you are. You are in the period of mission. So listen for that because Ascension is going to give you some clues about why maybe we have so much trouble with identity in this period of time. So let's jump in here to learn of Jesus from Luke's recording of, his ascent, of Jesus' ascension. I'm going to invite you to do something a little bit different here than usual. We've been practicing this in my, uh, my, uh, my small group with my guys on Thursday nights. It's a practice that comes from this book by David Benner called The Gift of Being Yourself. It's part of a, tri- a trilogy of books that are really wonderful and they're short, which is a real big benefit for someone like me. And um, it's not just about Bible reading or Bible study. It's about gospel meditation. It's about reading the text and instead of trying to figure out so many of the things about the who, what, where, why, no, all that kind of stuff, instead stopping and engaging your intuitive way of knowing, which is going to sound scary to some of you, I'm sure, and, and instead, as you hear the words, to imagine, if you will, not what you've thought of in the past, but to allow instead to have your head be occupied and your heart be occupied with questions like, when Jesus was looking at them, what was he seeing? When Jesus saw them, what did he see? And and I want you to go with that question, even if it feels weird, because when you see how Jesus saw them, you're also seeing how he sees you. And if you see how Jesus sees you, you'll see yourself probably for the first time. Best of all, you'll see why he loves you so spectacularly. But you'll also see how he sees you in some, with unflinching eyes. He's lidless. He sees everything. And so he combines those two things. He's, he's ferocious. So as Jesus is looking, as you hear this passage, you know, don't get tied up in too many details. Imagine Jesus seeing them ascending, seeing them. What's he seeing? What's he seeing? It's going to be a little bit scary. I'm going to invite you to do that. If you want, you can close your eyes. I just want you to put your feet on the floor, shoulders relaxed, and I'm just going to read this. I'm going to pray for us. Um, God, thank you for this gift of a few moments moments to have a spirit-guided encounter with Jesus. Uh, We want to focus on you. We want to see what you saw. We want to know what you knew. Amen. So this is Acts 1, chapter 1, verses 1 through 11. In my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and to teach until the day he was taken up to heaven after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. After suffering, he presented himself to them and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. On one occasion, while he was eating with them, he gave them this command. Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for my gift, wait for the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you'll be baptized with the Holy Spirit. And then they gathered around him and they asked him, these apostles, Lord, At this time, are you going to restore the kingdom to heaven? 
What did he see? When he looked at them, what did he feel? Not what did Jesus think. What did he feel? And he said to them, it is not for you to know the times or dates the Father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes to you, comes on you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to all the ends of the earth. And after he said this, he was taken up before their very eyes. And a cloud hid him from their sight. And they were looking intently up into the sky as he was going, when suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside them, beside them. Men of Galilee, they said, why do you stand here looking into the sky? This same Jesus, who has been taken from you into heaven, will come back in the same way you have seen him go into heaven. This is God's word. Now, if you're in my men's group, we just take that piece of paper and I'd hand it to Scott, who's running the PowerPoint back there, and he would read it. And when he finished, he would hand it to Jack, who's back there, and Jack would read it. And we would go around until eight people have read it. You would have the opportunity to hear eight diverse people read how they read scripture, and I guarantee you, every time you heard it, you'd gain a different perspective because you would see how other people see, right? You'd see how other people see. It's an incredible experience. So I'm just encouraging you to maybe take that, that discipline on a little bit. It doesn't take a lot, of, just a little bit of time every day. And we could completely geek out about this text, and we would leave knowing a lot more about the ascension. But would what you knew today would you know tomorrow? And if you did know it tomorrow, would it even matter? I, I love to say that if we're not going to be changed while we're in this room, if this isn't going to really change us, then let's just stay home and watch soccer or mow the lawn. But let's not waste our time here. Okay? Would it matter? It might not. Why is that? My guess, and I guess of a lot of people, is because the impact of impersonal knowing is very, very, very short. It doesn't last long. For knowing to be truly transformational, it must also be personal. It has to be personal. Because knowing about something is not the same as knowing of something. And knowing about God is not the same as knowing of God. We could spend time talking about how the cloud in the story is indicative of God's presence, just as it was when God led the Israelites with the pillar of flame and, and smoke. About, uh, we, could, we could stop and we could remember how when he uh, suddenly came into the temple in, in one moment, the whole temple was filled with flashes of fire and, and smoke there as well. We could even take time to look at the transfiguration of Jesus and, and think of how, what it must have been to be like Peter and James and John who were there with him and how when he appeared in his full glory, when he was transfigured, they, they saw a, a great cloud and, it was as though, and he shined in his glory, this Shekinah glory, as though he was himself the flame. That would be amazing to talk about. And when we did all that and, and, and did a word study on clouds and saw that they were all about God's presence. 
you'd know more about Jesus, but would you know more of him? Would you walk with greater happiness, greater authenticity, more honesty, more contentment? I want you to get hungrier. I want you to be less satisfied with knowing about God. Christianity is not a self-improvement project. It is not. It's not. And if you're here for that, please leave. That is, this is not about self-improvement. This is about knowing the God of all things who loves you wildly and loves you so much he will not let you go to be who you want to be when you want to be something less than love. God is love. God is love. God is love. And the call to be a disciple of his is to become love. It's a ferocious love, as I said earlier. So I want you to get hungrier. It's not a self-improvement project. We could debate the identity of these two men who appear out of nowhere, and then we could go on to discuss how some of these same sorts of visitors can be identified in the Bible over the millennia, some as strangers, some as grapplers. That's my favorite one. I just, the whole idea of grappling with God on a side of a river in the middle of the night. They, some of them were good news messenger carriers, and at their arrival, very often, it was the first thing they said to humans was, fear not. And you would, leave no, you would leave knowing much more about these angelic beings. But would you know more about yourself? Maybe not. For knowing to be transformational, it must be personal, and it must be experiential, and part of it is coming to know something more about yourself. Provoked by this book by David Benner, The Gift of Being Yourself, I've been uh, doing a thought experiment. I've been wandering around, starting with my, men, my small group. Um, they're, the, they're always the first guinea pigs, as they'll tell you. And um, I've been asking all sorts of people this question from that book. What does it mean to be a Christian? And almost without exception, I'm getting the same answer that David Benner does. So... I'm not going to ask for anybody to shout it out, but if I asked you that question, what does, it mean to be a, what does it mean to be a Christian? If you can, take note of what that answer is for you. Here's what I'm getting, though. Well, what it means to be a Christian is to believe, and then I'm hearing people rattle off three or four or two beliefs. To be a Christian is to believe that Jesus is God's son. To, uh, to be a Christian is to believe that you're short of the mark and you need help with that. To be a Christian, you might get closer, sometimes it's to trust God, but it's, it's, that's mostly what's coming back. And I find this response frightening because it indicates that where we sit mostly is in our knowledge about God and very few of us are able to lead with talking about what it's like to be of God. What's your experience of Jesus really? Really? If you, it's probably gonna sound terrifying, but what if when that question came up in your, with your friends and your neighbors, 
You answered it not about belief, but you answered it as a witness. You answered it as someone who had experienced themselves what it was like to be loved with God and who continually struggles and has to daily depend on God and how there was a great hope as well at the end. And if that kind of honesty came out of you, they would feel heard because it's their story too. So this is very powerful, I think, this first question. What does it mean to be a Christian? Do you know, if you throw this light up there, yeah, do you know about God or do you know of God? The second question I borrowed from him, from Benner, is what do you think is the most important thing for your existence and well-being? And what's coming back usually is knowing God or finding God. One person said, loving my neighbor. Almost no one, in fact, in my experience, nobody made any reference about themselves, about the self, who is themselves. It's not surprising that Christians believe that knowing God plays a really big part in spirituality. That's, that's, that's part of that equation, for sure. But if the entirety of God's law is encompassed in love God, right, and love your neighbor as yourself, then by definition, if, if the primary, if it's out of balance, the experience is about knowing God, then we're going to be left as Christian paupers, spiritually, because real transformation does involve the self, and it can only involve the self when the self and God are both known and embraced. Like, we have to embrace ourselves the way God has embraced us. I mean, one of the things that stands out to me about my life is the way over time, I just sheared off piece of my, pieces of myself because they weren't okay. They made me very uncomfortable. And so I arrived in my late 50s as just a product of a, an image of a ghost. I, I left so much of myself behind. And none of that stuff ever had really been allowed to be loved by God. So I had to go back, get that scared little kid, bring him back up here, be honest about him, and let him get some love. So, would you agree, I've done this before, I think it's funny, so I'm entertaining myself now. Would you agree that some of the people you know, not you of course, and not the person sitting next to you right now, but some of the people you know are pretty blind when it comes to seeing themselves. Do you know anybody like that? They are blind to how they are coming off. They are blind to how people are experiencing them. Ah, probably just one or two. Yeah, I got, I got one or two, right? Not you, of course. And would you say that some of these people have actual behaviors, behaviors that supposedly they're in control of, that cause some of the problems that are in their lives? Like, they got behaviors, and they can't see it, and that's causing trouble. Not you, of course, but someone that you know. And do you know some people who think that if they self-improve, if they just white-knuckle it, if they just double down, they work harder, then the behavior will change? Do you know anybody like that? And do you know anybody who, who acts like that and what everybody else realizes is that they are stuck and they're not getting any better and they're getting worse? Not that you know anybody like that. And do you know anybody that maybe, maybe the problem is not the behaviors? The problem is the blindness. The blind, this is, we focus on sin 
Sins, plural, small s. But the problem is blindness. The problem is the big S. And until I can just embrace the fact that I am sin and say, in that, I am completely loved by God. That's the powerful place. That's like grabbing both sides of two electric, the positive in one terminal, positive terminal in one hand and the negative terminal in the other and just letting the electricity flow through you, pulse through you. I am loved by God and I don't do sin. Sin did me and I am sin. So it's a matter of bringing those two things together. We are terrible at seeing ourselves. I'm gonna put a um, quote up here from one of my favorite authors, Walker Percy. I'd like to read the whole thing, but I'm sure I'm way over time already. This book, Lost in the Cosmos, is amazing. And he just says, one of the peculiar ironies of being a human self in the cosmos, a stranger approaching you in the street will in a second's glance see you whole, size you up, place you in a way in which you cannot and never will, even though you have spent a lifetime with yourself live in the century of the self, and therefore ought to know yourself best of all. That's a terrible problem, but that describes many of us, all of us, in some points of our lives. So how to remedy this? I've got another quote here. It's St. Augustine's, Augustine's very simple prayer. Oh God, I pray you let me know myself. Let me see myself. Let's go back with that in mind, and let's come back to this ascension event and see what's going on there. So the permanent value or the mandate, I would say, of the ascension event is that it reveals a universal pattern for spiritual transformation. And as I can tell, this, I didn't, this is me making the stuff up so it could be totally off track, so take it from there. The first step is that we have got to embrace the Spirit's loving and scrupulous examination of us. That's the first thing. I don't have a slide for this, so you're gonna have to listen. We embrace, number one, we embrace the Spirit's loving and scrupulous examination of us. That's the first thing. The second thing is we, we need to embrace also that Jesus sees us and he makes intercession for us. We're going to get into that in deeper, but this is, this is incredible. These two things together, scrupulous examination and the fact that Jesus makes intercession for us before the Father. And when that is happening, we're in a dynamic position where we can come to love ourselves exactly the way we are. Doesn't mean we'll be left to not change, but it's gonna become a powerful motor for change in our lives when those two things happen. And as witnesses of our own transformation, we ask for God's help to help other people that are stargazers. Because these apostles weren't ready after the resurrection to go out and perform their mission. They were busy stargazing, looking up in the heavens as Jesus went. You hear it in the reproof that the two angels gave. In verse 6, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom of Israel? The apostles, after the resurrection, were holding on to two old, tired, transformation-killing idols. The first was political that the ministry of Jesus was going to be primary political, that he was going to reinstate his king, this old kingdom of, of, the, of the Jewish people. And the second was pietistic, that as Jews they were God's children and that they were above others who were unclean. It would be pretty hard to become a great witness to your neighbor if you had those as your dominant beliefs. 
but that is where they found themselves. The apostles in this scenario, quite possibly, had a stake in the success of this old mindset as is defined. If Jesus was political and pietistic, then just maybe they were gonna be the princes and the priests in that new kingdom. And for Jesus to just go and be taken in the air must have been devastating news for them uh, because they were depending on a bodily presence for that to all happen in Jesus. Can you imagine the moment? All eyes on Jesus and he's taken up and all eyes are on Jesus and Jesus' eyes are all on everybody else. Like, I can't look you in the eye for more than one second without feeling terror. And can you imagine the gaze of Jesus in their eyes as he goes? They had to be stunned. They had to be thinking, what does this mean for me? Which is a pretty good sign that they're off track. And Jesus answered, it's not for you to know the times and dates of your life. I have something better for you. You'll be my witnesses. But you'll have to give up your own tired program for your personal happiness. We're no different. You may not have the political pietistic thing going on, but I'm sure you've got something going on. So I'm gonna just walk through these steps. Step one is we embrace the Spirit's loving and scrupulous examination of us. This is difficult, um, and it can happen in many different ways, but I'm going to try to redeem the, and make a, a real hard plea for the discipline of confession, confession. So I'm not gonna attack all these scriptures, I'm just gonna read one, but if these are, if you wanna take a picture of that, just you can go back later and read through some of these. Confession is absolutely critical, especially if you just see confession as, as saying out loud what's going on in your life to another human being. And even better, if that human being is somebody who will not judge you and who will love you, but who will also challenge you. Not being judged is, I cannot, I, you cannot be judging me and you can be challenging me. If your definition is that anybody who challenges me is judging me, you're not gonna transform. Give it up. And self-help won't work either. If somebody really loves you, they will care for you and they will challenge you and they will do both, and that's what love will look like. So in confession, I believe, is the best way to gain sight about the strongholds and the beliefs in your life, right? I learned so much in my small group about my blindness whenever I share with them something that's going on in my life, and they take the time to say back to me how they think I'm coming off to say to me what they hear between the lines. That always helps me. There's something absolutely liberating about sharing what's going on in your life, no matter what it is, and hearing somebody say, me too, me too. And I have to say also, the amazing thing about this kind of life together and confessing, it's, it's talking about more than what's wrong. It's talking about good, and it's talking about bad, and it's talking about your joys, and it's talking about your downs. And when you have a group of eight people together doing something like this, it's a mix. And so it's, it's people with real joy mingled together with people that have real trials going on in their lives. That's dynamic and powerful. It's, it feels like life. 
And when someone else, is it not true that when someone else is talking about their life in that way, that I don't get the opportunity to learn from them too? I mean, I've, I have the same flesh. I have the same patterns. It might be a different variety, but it's the same, it's the same do loop I'm in. And in hearing them talk, I'm so encouraged about my own possibilities. I just, I just can't. I think it's unfortunate that in evangelical or in Protestant circles, there was this rejection about, around confession funk, and, 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 and pretending like we didn't reject it because we got really wrapped up in do we need a mediator between God and ourselves as we confess our sins. I think the Bible's pretty clear about that. I don't think we do. <laughs> but that doesn't excuse us from confession. And we would do well to go back and think of ways functionally we could get confession, real confessing, back into our lives. I've got an idea how to do that. Now, this is not mine. I think this is from Tim Keller. I've had this for years. Um, confession. The people that should confess first in the church should be the ministers and the elders. The ministers and the elders should be the chief repenters. All should repent. But if the elders and the, and the pastors aren't repenting in, in, our, in our church... We're headed for the rocks. The best example of this is in Romans 7, 15, 20. Paul, St. Paul, has this amazing confession. I can imagine that if he put this in front of his board of elders, in most churches they would say, say more. We'd like to know all the, de- the gory details right now. But I just want to read how this confession looks, what it looks like and how real it is. Paul wrote to the Romans, he said, uh, I do not understand what I do. For what I want to do, I do not do. But what I hate, I do. And if I do what I do not want to do, I agree that the law is good. As it is, it is no longer I myself who do it, but it is sin living in me. For I know that good itself does not dwell in me, that is, in my sinful nature. For I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. For I do not do what is good, I do not do what I want to do, but the evil I do not want to do, this I keep doing. Now if I do what I do not want to do, it is no longer I who do it, but it is sin living in me that does it. And if you can say those words, and someone can walk up to you and put a big arm around you and say, me too transformation is going to take hold. All right, second step. And these don't really have to happen in all this, this order. It's just convenient for me to lay them out this way. Jesus sees us, and he makes intercession for us. He mediates for us. In his ascension, uh, Jesus didn't just to take, decide to take a break from his shepherding duties. Um, he didn't, like, put the cane up and, and then, like, the rod and, you know, Wash the clothes. No, he, he, and it's not that he's busy, because I can imagine that God's really ever busy. Um, but he's doing more for us now than we can possibly imagine um, during the time when he was stuck in this bodily form in Galilee. Romans 8, 34, again, more verses here, and you could look it up. There's lots more stuff on this, on the ascension and intercession. Um, but I love this verse um, right here. Um, in uh, Timothy, 1 Timothy 2.5, for there is one God and there's one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. 
So he's making mediation. So a mediation is somebody who stands before a judge, between a judge and a wrongdoer. And the mediator works it out. Or he works out something between two people who have a difference of opinion. So I, I want you to think of God, I want you to think of Jesus now as very active on your behalf. Very active on your behalf, mediating for you. He loves you so much. He's willing to wade into the really me- mediation. Has anybody ever been to mediation? Not fun stuff. Really messy, really ugly. Jesus is right there in the middle. The medi, like medi, the medium, he's in the middle. He's mediating for us. In Romans 8, 34, there's this great verse. Who then is the one who condemns? No one. All, it, those are, when you feel condemnation, those are just the unborn chicken voices in your head. And those of you that love Radiohead like I do know where that came from. But when you feel condemned, you are not condemned. No one. Because Christ Jesus who died, more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. That's amazing. If when he was humbled, despised, dying, dead, he was able to accomplish our salvation, how much more does he do now as he is living, ascended, exalted, triumphant, and interceding on your behalf? It's a mystery, and it's true. So those two pistons, confession Intercession, amazing. Step three is a big leap, this ascension. We come to see how God loves us and we come to love ourselves as we are. Uh, I'm just gonna tell a little bit about my own journey here. Uh, Probably the best way to get this one across. Um, In our family, because of Kathy and, and, and she got the Enneagram first and really is deep and all over using that tool. Um, I've benefited as well from using that tool as a, as a sort of diagnostic, not as a way to just take a personality test and say, oh, I'm a three, that's just how I am, I'm kind of a jerk. Um, well, that would be true. Um, and I do my best not to resist the urge to type other people. But when I first started using the Enneagram as a tool, uh, I'm gonna say this, it brought us a, a, a horrible sense of humiliation to me. Um, I flirted around with other types because it was too painful to admit that I was a three and that what lied at the core, my core sin is deceit and deceit of self comes before I can ever deceive somebody else and as I began to pray and ask God into that I did not like what was coming back I felt like everything in my life was at risk and would be lost. That's exactly what the apostles were experiencing at the ascension at the start. Oh, this isn't going to be a kingdom? Everything I built my life on, everything felt like it was coming apart. I remember one night where I had to just go, just go for a long walk in the darkness and come back. I was like, that's it. Woke up the next morning, it's like, that's it. I'm not using this tool anymore. I'll just lie. I'm just, I just, I don't want to do this. My response to this new 
scrupulous examination from God is characterized and still is by defensiveness. If somebody says something to me, I'll get defensive. I might smile, but you bet I'd be defensive, and I play to win. And I've hurt some people because of that. I hurt people all the time because of that. You probably do defensiveness pretty well, too. Defensiveness is a great way to detect your sin nature, your sin being, the way you are. But I did come back. I just gave up. And why? Because my life was a complete mess. <laughs> God had granted me insight to see how, how, how hollow and thin I was. And I've seen some examples of what happens to leaders in our church when they live in that place too long. And I didn't want to be that, I didn't want that outcome. So that's the power of being in the community. I came to realize I needed three things to Ben or Minch's, although he says them better than I ever would have, of course, that I needed in order to begin this transformation and remain in it. And I knew that every one of them was going to inflict pain and large doses of it because pain is love's hammer. I needed first to see myself as deeply loved. I needed second to see myself as deeply sinful. I needed to see myself thirdly as truly in the process of being redeemed and transformed and imperfect and being really okay with that. So now, it's not perfect. This isn't like a celebrity story. I'm not, everything's not great. Um, but now, I've plumbed much more of the depth of my ruinous self, what I call my ruinous self. I even feel as though on occasion, like that whale, I ascend through the, back up through the depths and breach the surface in my own ascension. Like a whale in breaching looks amazing and looks joyous. And I definitely hit that sometimes now. I found out that people love me as I am, and I can love myself that way too. It sounds a little, little odd. And I can even love me even though sometimes I land in deceit. And the big takeaway for me is I just am enjoying my life with greater honesty and contentment. I was never a content person, and somehow it's arrived. What a gift. So step four, as witnesses of our own transformation, isn't that odd I chose that? <laughs> We ask for God's help to help those who are still stargazers. Nothing's going to cement your transformation more than helping others in their own journey. Nothing. I, I, want, I want you to know this. I want to lean really hard against something here. We, we think that we have to be experts in something before we can teach it or before we can take it out and share it. No, 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 no. The story about witnesses, about being real right where you are, there's, every one of us has a story. Do it now. Give it away. Reject celebrity. Jesus is for losers. Don't shine up your messy life. Tell it straight. What was it like before you heard of Jesus, before you had this experience of Jesus? What was it like before you had this experience of Jesus? Number two, what is your experience of Jesus like now, imperfect, honestly, be honest. 
What is it that, that, what is the difference that it's made? That's the third part. What's the difference it's made? And the fourth, he's on this page somewhere. <laughs> oh, where are you going? What's possible now for you? What was not possible before is possible now. Oh my gosh. The pattern is simple to go from stargazer to witness. You go from the progress of step one on through to step four. You'll come to see how God sees you and you'll come to love yourself the way that he loves you. You'll come to, you'll see how he looks at you in scrupulous examination and you will be able to stand under that examination yourself. You'll have the courage you truly want and you will come to see your neighbor with the compassion that was never possible before. Real, true compassion. You might even end up loving an enemy. Because that's the real test of holiness. And then they will join you on that continuing journey. This is what it means to be a witness. Now I'm going to do the takeaway. I don't know if that's what you want to be. And if you say you're 100% in, I know you're a liar. Nobody says yes to that ask and says they're all in. But if there's a little something in you that wants to know who you are, why you do things you don't want to do, why it's so hard to be honest, why you're defensive, if you want to be, there's a little piece of you that wants to know what it's like, what to know about God, but there's a much bigger piece that's growing in you that wants to know something what it's like to know of God. If you want to live less in that ruinous self where I was trapped, if you want to go, if you want to gain sight back, if you want to give up your lameness, if you want to stop staring into the sky and start doing the work that God's called you to, do you want to have a sense of purpose? Do you want to, do you want to be the kind of person that lives in God's presence? Then say yes. Now is your time to become witnesses. God loves you tremendously, but he loves you too much to allow you to remain as a stargazer. Come, Lord Jesus, come. Let me pray for us. God, thank you for today. Thank you for this wonderful ascension story. More than that, this ascension reality. And thank you for your offer um, to be absorbed completely into your love and to be transformed into love like you. Amen. Amen.